everyone. Welcome to you. We're starting a new series this weekend that we're calling Life's Too Short, and we're going to uh, spend some time talking about some topics that are so important that we need to get them right, and we need to get them right now. Uh, so we're going to be doing this all the way actually up through Easter. Uh, life is too short. And today we're going to kind of explore that first question that we talked about, a Christian is. So if I was to ask you the question, in fact, if it was to break you up, let's say, into groups of 10, and somebody was taking notes and everybody got to finish that sentence, a Christian is, my guess is that we would probably come up together with a lot of, of different answers. Not all the same, maybe not some that aren't even really close to the same. Uh, and yet as we go outside of these walls, uh, we find that the answers kind of get even even broader. I mean, um, this week, asking some different people what they thought, and some of, the, some of the feedback I got was positive. I had some people say, you know, things like, I, a Christian is a committed follower of Christ, or, um, you know, someone who loves like Jesus loved, or lives like he does, or is forgiving, or helps the poor. And, and then some, some, of the impa- some of the feedback I got was a little more negative, you know, like, uh, Christians are evil because they want to take over the world, which is basically true. But, um, you know, but stuff like, well, the Christians are out of touch with reality. Um, Christians need a crutch in order to deal with real life. They're ignorant. They're judgmental. They're narrow-minded. Um, I found a great, de- uh, depending on your definition of great, I found a great definition of Christianity this week uh, from one guy. You can tell where he's coming from. He said this, Christians are judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish that everyone else is going to hell. Um, so that would be one definition. And, and certainly you probably know people like I do who would probably be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what a Christian is. So if there's so many different ideas about what a Christian is and so many different definitions about what a Christian is, then how do we know um, who's right? How do we know what defines a real true Christian? And, and what I've discovered over the years is um, there's kind of two camps. There's people who say a Christian is, a true Christian is defined by what they believe. And others will say, well, a true Christian is defined by how they behave. So for instance, I went to a Bible college and seminary where they basically taught um, a true Christian, you can tell by, it's by what they believe. So for instance, you've got to have the right view on the authority of scripture and the right view of baptism. We just had baptism in the last service. You better make sure you get that exactly right. Don't mess it up at all. Um, you've got to have the right view of communion, the right understanding of grace versus works. Um, you've got to get the eternal security thing right. That was kind of a big one. You know, it's like the once saved, always saved, or the, you know, getting saved every day kind of thing. And uh, so some people say it's what you believe. That's what makes you a true Christian. Other people say, actually, if you read the Bible, it's more about how you behave. It's about how you live. It's that you love other people like Jesus loved. That's, that's what a Christian is. Or, or you serve like Jesus served. Or you're a person of prayer. Or, or you're generous like the Bible tells us to be. Um, I had uh, lunch a couple years back with a guy uh, I've known for many, many, many years. And um, he's going to a church in Portland. And so as we were talking about church, he's asking about our church. And, and then finally he told me, he's like, well, you should know. He's like, I go to the, I go to the real church, the true church. I go to the church where we're true Christians, um, you know, as opposed apparently to where I go. So when I asked him, I'm like, well, how, so how, what, how do you know that you guys are the true Christians? He said a couple things that I know. He said, First of all, um, we have Sunday school. So right away, kids, we're all in trouble, okay? Because we don't, we don't have Sunday school. But they're like, we have Sunday school. And a real Christian goes to Sunday school. A real Christian sings out of hymns. They don't use, they don't use these things. And they don't, certainly don't use these things. Um, real Christians use hymnals with pianos and organs. Real Christians wear suits, he said, and dresses in their, in their church. I'm assuming he wears, he wears a suit. But anyways, uh, they, go, they have church on Sunday night. Remember that? They have church on Sunday night. And they have church on Wednesday night. 
And he says, that's how we know that we're true Christians. So, of course, the, the problem is that the term Christian is just a little bit hazy, a little bit fuzzy for a good reason. Uh, first of all, Jesus never used the word to describe anybody at any time. Um, believers uh, in the New Testament never referred to themselves as Christians. Uh, the term itself is not defined in the Bible, and it only appears three times. One of the times, the first time, is in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, the, the word Christian or Christianos was the word. It, it, uh, it literally means Christ ones or little Christ or, you know, mini Jesus, I guess. And, and the, the unbelievers used it as a derogatory term. They were making fun of little Jesus. And they, so they would make fun. They're like, ooh, there's a Christianos and there's a little, a little Jesus. And they would make fun of him. It was meant to be a derogatory term. But somewhere along the line, I guess Christians thought it's not that bad, you know, to be a little Jesus. And they decided it was okay. And so Christians or, or disciples kind of grabbed onto that term. Now, just so you understand, I don't have a problem with the term Christian, and it's not, I'm, I'm not on a crusade to get rid of the word Christian or anything like that. The problem I'm, I'm just mentioning is that it's a very vague term. And people can pretty much today use it to mean anything that they want. Have you noticed that? The word Christian is attached to just about every side of every view. Um, for instance, uh, somebody can call themselves a Christian, and, and what they mean is they're an absolute off-the-wall Jesus freak. You know what I mean? Everywhere they go, they got to talk about Jesus and talk about the gospel and talk about salvation. But some people, when they use the word Christian, all they really mean is it's a moral code. They're a Christian. They, they live by a certain moral code. They're, they're nice. They're, you know, they don't, they don't drink or chew or what, run with girls that do. So that's like a, that's a Christian to them. Or some people, when they say Christian, they, they mean they're a Republican. And um, some people, when they're a Christian, they mean they're a Democrat. You know, like, how could you be a Republican and be a Christian? And, and, and people do that on both sides. You have people who are pro-life, uh, who are Christian. You have people who are pro-choice, who claim to be Christian. You have people who support gay marriage, who say the Bible supports that. People who only support heterosexual marriage, who say that the Bible supports that. Even right now with the gun issue going on, you have Christians on both sides. Both claiming to be uh, the, the true Christians and have the true view. So how, you know, how do we do that? How, how do we decide what's right? And I think what it comes down to is the term Christian is basically means whatever you want it to mean anymore. It's kind of a designer word. Like a designer Christian is, I'll just kind of pick and choose what I want to believe and then I'll just slap the word Christian on there and then and I'll be good to go. So the word Christian isn't really a threatening word. Um, in fact, it's a word that most Americans, about 85%, believe it or not, use to um, describe who they are. So it can mean anything we want. Um, but when we come to the Bible, we find a term that is a lot more specific, a lot more laser-focused, and quite frankly, for many of us, a lot more terrifying than um, the word Christian. And that would be the word here. When Jesus says, go therefore, or therefore go, and make, make not Christians, right? Uh, but make what? Make disciples. Now that's the word. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now what does that mean? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So in this passage, we learn a couple things about what a disciple is. Very specific. Uh, first of all, um, the word disciple itself, mathetes means a, a, a pupil, a student, a follower. It was a word back then that would be used. Uh, a Jewish rabbi in Jesus' day would go out and he would choose some men who would be his disciples. And he would be their teacher and they would be the student. And they would receive instruction from him and they would watch him and they would imitate him. And then they would go out and, and teach that to other people. They were a, dis a disciple of a rabbi. So to be a disciple of Jesus means 
that Jesus is your instructor, uh, that he is your example, that he is your leader. In fact, Jesus would say that he is your Lord. He is your Savior. And that means that we believe what he taught and that we do what he did. That's a disciple. That's a mathetes, a student or a follower of Jesus. So the first thing we discover is a disciple, very specifically, is someone who's a student of Jesus Christ. The second thing we find in the word baptism here is that they were people who identified publicly with Jesus. So it says here that they would be baptized. And, and baptism in those days was done right out in public. So, you know, you could have been in downtown Portland and somebody could come up uh, uh, and just share Jesus with you. And you would say, sure, I want to give my life to Christ. And then they might say, well, we, we need to get you baptized right now. There's a water fountain over there. And, you know, they kind of, and, and what you do is you'd give a little testimony and you'd say, you know, once I was lost and now I'm found, once I was in sin, but now I found Jesus. And so I'm going to be baptized. And baptism just signifies that the, the identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's your way of going, I'm going public with my faith. I want everyone to know who I am. So, so that's what it means. And not just to be baptized, uh, but every day. And in everything that you do, you identify yourself as a Christian. And the third thing that a disciple is, is they're someone who obeys Jesus. Not just someone who learns about Jesus. Not someone who just studies about Jesus. Not, not someone who puts a whole bunch of notes together uh, from church and has them bound and, you know, looks really good and they have it on their shelf. And, uh, but this is someone who actually takes Jesus' teaching and they do it. They don't just talk about love. They don't just do a, a four-week series like we just did on love and not do it. All right? That's not a disciple. A disciple is someone who learns about love and then they actually go and they love people. So um, back years ago, there was the whole, remember the whole WWJD, the whole what would Jesus do thing? And we had the bumper stickers and the, you know, armbands and the shirts and the goggles and everything else, right? And, and uh, the hats. And, um, and we kind of make fun of that now, but it was actually not a bad thing, I think. Because to ask yourself, what, what would Jesus do in my situation? That's a good question. Ask it. Basically, that's what a disciple does. So a, a disciple says, what would Jesus do if he had to make my decision? And then that's what a disciple does. A disciple says, well, they wake up in the morning and say, I have a whole day in front of me, you know? Uh, what should I do with my day? What would Jesus do? And that's what they do. Uh, what would Jesus do with my money? What would Jesus do with my relationships? How would he pursue my marriage? How would he, how would he treat my wife, my kids? How would he solve that problem? That's what a disciple does. They ask that question. They look into the answer. They look at Jesus. And then they go and they do that. And so here's our big idea for this weekend. I'm going to say that life's too short to be a designer Christian. You know, by designer Christian, I mean someone who says, well, here's all the options in, in Christianity. And so I'll take a little communion and a little bit of the cross. And I'm not really into the obedience thing. No, thank you. And the public sharing thing. No, I'm not into that. I'm not wearing the t-shirt. But, you know, yeah, I will go to church. And so it's kind of this designer, like I'll take some of this and I, I won't take some of that. But I'm going to say that life's too short to be a designer Christian. God has called us to be disciples. And when I say disciples, again, very specific, using very specific ideas here. In Luke 14, notice what Jesus said about discipleship. Um, it says, one day there were large crowds that were traveling with Jesus and turning to him, uh, he said, so every time I read this passage, I have this picture. Jesus' ministry is getting pretty popular. People hear about, he, he's healing people, he's feeding people, he's working miracles, he's walking on the water. People hear that, I mean, you know, when you hear about that, you'd be interested to see that guy too. So he's walking through towns and everyone just kind of, hey, it's Jesus. And so, you know, they're all kind of following behind him and he's kind of walking and looking over his shoulders. And so I always picture like at one point he just stops and turns around and he says to the crowd, because he could see what's going on. He says, hey, listen, if anyone comes to me, that's what they're doing. If anyone comes to me and does not, and now he's just going to kind of blow him away here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And, and, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now we know from studying scripture and looking at the things that Jesus said, he's not saying to hate your parents and you were just, you know, I was just looking for a verse that supported that, um, for hating your, your, your friends and, or your neighbors. It's not what he's saying. Uh, he's speaking in hyperbole here because he's told us many times, in fact, we're to love our neighbors. And we're to love, we're even to love our enemies. And, and we're to love ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourself. All those things are important. But, but what he's saying here is he's kind of speaking in a contrast that's so big. So what, he's not saying like, um, you should love God kind of like you love people, right? So he's not saying you have your friends and Jesus is one of them, right? He's saying, no, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, it, we're not even talking about like, here's Jesus and here's everyone else. What he's kind of saying is, there's Jesus way up there and your friends are way down here. Like imagine that you love your friends even more tomorrow than you do today, but that you love Jesus so much more that it's kind of black and white. It's this huge chasm. And that's what he's talking about here. It's a contrast that every other relationship would pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. So suddenly our life isn't all about pleasing people and doing things so that people like us and saying things so that people like us. Now it's about following Jesus. And of course, it sounds pretty intense because it is pretty intense. And I I think part of what Jesus is trying to say to the crowd on that day is, I'm not into designer Christianity. I'm not into sitting down with you and, you know, well, pick and choose. What do you want? What do you not want to believe? And well, I don't want to do the hard stuff, but I like the easy stuff. And going to heaven sounds good, you know, and and God blessing my money sounds good. I like that. Instead, what Jesus says is, is, this is what it's about. He says, follow me, obey me, and identify with me because life is too short to try to be a halfway Christian. In fact, he says this in Luke 14. He says, now, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. You want to build a tower. You want to build a condo. You want to build a a structure, a business. He says, will you not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Now, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So, Jesus obviously isn't looking for a casual commitment. He's not looking for a half surrender. In fact, don't miss what he's saying here. What he's kind of saying is, you can be a disciple and you can be all in, or don't bother. Because there is no in-between. He says, you're either a disciple and you obey me, or you're not. That's what it comes down to. Because Jesus didn't come to start a new religion he didn't come to start a country club of, of, of moralists and, and purists and, and people who get together and sing a few songs and give some money. It's not what he came for. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to find people who are lost, who are hurting, and he came to save them. And he called us to be a part of that, part of the rescue mission, part of the light, part of proclaiming and living in community. So he's not talking about a watered down Christianity. He, he's not talking about like uh, 85% of Americans today, 85% call themselves Christians. That's about 247 million people in our country. And yet, here's what statistics say. Those same people are just as likely to get divorced as non-Christians. And they're just as likely to have sex outside of marriage as non-Christians. They're just as likely to cheat on tests at school and cheat on their taxes. You know, that's coming up. And um, abort their babies. And, and get this, they're even less likely less likely to help the poor than people who are not. 
And I think Jesus would say, that isn't what I had in mind. That's not what this is supposed to be about. All right? Discipleship is radical. Discipleship is costly. Now, what's it going to cost us? Now, I could talk to you about all the benefits of being a disciple, but I thought, why do that? That's too easy. So let's talk about the cost of discipleship, if we could, for a few minutes. So what's it going to cost, Jen? I'm, I'm tired. I've been standing up all weekend, but I'm getting worked up, so I'm going to stand up. All right, so first of all, it's going to cost you control, all right? Now, I'm sure none of you are, are, are controlling people and like to control your life. I'm, you know, I'm not either, but one of the things it's going to cost you is control. So notice what Jesus said to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and he must pick up his cross and he must follow me. So Jesus said, you're going to have to deny yourself. And we all know what that is. Right? Because we all have our plans. We all have designs for our life and, and our relationships. And we have, we have plans for our education and our career and our family and the material possessions we're going to get and, and our accomplishments and our health. And we've got plans for today, probably this afternoon and for tomorrow and the next day. And, and really the question becomes, who's going to control your agenda? Is it going to be you? Are you going to base your agenda, build your agenda based on your limited knowledge and wisdom? Are you going to guess? Or are you going to let Jesus set the agenda for you? So now I just say that because I'll, I'll tell you, if, if you're young, I have sympathy for you. Because as you get older, this gets easier, right? Because as you get older, you discover how few things you ever really controlled in the first place. Like, like one of the difficult things about being young is you have this idea that you control all sorts of things that you have absolutely no control over at all. And the older you get, you start to discover, right? There's only a few things that we can control at all. And now here's the even, I don't know, better news or not news. And that is the few things you do control today, you will eventually lose control of those as well until someday you'll have control of nothing at all. Isn't that a good news for you today, right? But here's what we do have. We do have the opportunity to invest. We do have the opportunity to influence the world we live in. But that's different than controlling. There's influence and there's controlling. And, and part of what Jesus is saying is you've got to get over this, this obsession of yours to control and learn that it's all about influence. So God has given you some things to invest. He's given you time, right? You're still here, you're still breathing, so you got some time. Uh, he's given you some talents. You have talents and abilities, things that God has made you good at to invest in this world. What will you do with those things? God's given you some energy and some money and some love, some compassion, a heart, some intelligence. So the question becomes, what will you spend it on? Will you pour all of your life, invest all of your life into a thing like a house or possession or, or, or into a career? Or will you use those things, all of those, to influence your world and to influence and, imble- and, and to bless the people in your home and the people around you? Will you use it for eternal benefit? So Jesus says you take up your cross and you follow him. That means you surrender control. It, it's costly. And now there's a second thing it's going to cost you. And so I've apologized in all the sermons. I tried to come up with a better word than popularity because I know it sounds so middle school and am I popular? And, and it's not really what I mean, but I couldn't come up with a better word. But it's going to cost you popularity, all right? So here's the thing I find uh, a little trend I'm noticing in, in sermons that I hear today. Um, and I've heard several pastors say it recently. They'll say, in fact, I heard a guy say almost this verbatim to his congregation recently. He's speaking to the crowd and he said this. He said, now, I can understand why you don't like Christians, because Christians are, they could be jerks and self-righteous and judgmental. So if you don't like Christians, I can understand why that is. But 
if, if you were alive when Jesus was here and, and you had a chance to meet him, I guarantee you would have liked him. Now, the only problem I have with that, as cool as that sounds, is that it doesn't explain all the people that didn't like him, that met him when he was on the earth. Because a lot of people met him and they, they didn't like him. In fact, that's why we have a cross in this room, because there were people who didn't like him. Now, Jesus said, remember the words I spoke to you? Here they are. No servant is greater than his master. He's the master with a servant. He says, and if they persecuted me, which by the way, they did, then they will persecute you also. So here's Jesus, a man on a passionate, aggressive rescue mission that caused him to do things that other people were uncomfortable with. For instance, he hung out with sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. He spent time with thieves and with with tax collectors and he ate with them. And he went to their homes, which you weren't supposed to do. And he'd meet them down at Red Robin in the lounge and they'd have, you know, and they'd have some, uh, you know, some appetizers together. And people would walk by and they'd see Jesus with prostitutes and with thieves. And, and, And when they'd see that, it bothered them so much, they would gossip about him. And they would, they would slander. They would, did, you see, did you see Jesus? Man, I, saw, I, th- I think I saw him down at the Bigfoot Tavern. I'm almost positive it was him. I was driving by. It looked just like him. You know, the beard and the whole thing and the sandals. And, and uh, you know, and, and people would say like, oh yeah, I saw Jesus. He was, with a, he was with a bunch of gluttons the other day. He must be a glutton. And I saw him down, you know, I saw him with some drunks. So he must be a drunk, right? He must do that stuff. And there were people that didn't like Jesus and gossiped about him and, and slandered. And all Jesus is saying is this. If you, if you love other people, like Jesus loved other people, okay, then people are going to talk about you just like they talked about him. Now, on the other hand, if you don't love people, then they may not talk about you that way. So Jesus just says, this is what you should expect. If you're a disciple, then you should expect to get what he got. When he loved people, when he cared for people, what did he get? You're going to get the same thing. Now, I'll just admit to you, even all these years of being a pastor, it, it, it hurts when people don't, you know, decide they don't like you, when people decide um, to gossip about you, when people decide to slander you. It still happens at times. It's not fun. It hurts a little bit when people decide I'm not going to this church anymore. When, you know, every now and then when I get on Facebook and someone's unfriended me, you know, and I discover that, I'm like, oh, that kind of, that kind of hurts, you know. But being a disciple means that you love Jesus, and you're so committed to him, and you want to follow him that after a while, you don't, you don't, you know, stay awake tonight going, why did he unfriend me? What did I do? What did I, you just, you just get over that, right? You just grow up, and you say, you know what? I love Jesus, and I want to follow him, and I want to be like Jesus in this world, so I'm going to get what he got, and in fact, if I get it, then maybe that means I'm doing something right. So there were a lot of people that loved Jesus, and there were people that hated him, and, and the same thing's going to be true of you if you follow him. Now, don't hear me in the wrong way, because sometimes this happens. Okay, Jesus is not saying uh, to the crowd, make me proud by being the biggest jerk you can possibly be. You know, just go out there, be a judgmental, mean Christian, because the more people that hate you, right, then the more you're doing it right. And that's not what he's saying. There's a difference between being a jerk and, and humbly following Jesus and loving other people. But discipleship's gonna cost you. And over the years, I've seen it cost people a lot of things. For some people, it's cost them relationships, it's cost them relationships with parents, with kids, with siblings, with friends, even sometimes between spouses. I've seen people that have, it's cost them a job. It's cost them a promotion because they weren't willing to do the un, 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 unethical stuff that other people were willing to do to get the job. It might mean people are going to talk about you and gossip about you because you're different, not include you in their group because you won't try to please them. In fact, you know what? It could cost you even more than that. 
Still in our world today, sometimes being a Christian means it will cost you your freedom. And sometimes it even means it will cost you your life. Doing some research online this week, looking at uh, some statistics from last year. And uh, the, the Pew Forum study found that in the 193 countries in the world today, Christians are being persecuted in 131. 131 of 193 countries. That's about 200 million Christians a year, we're told, are being persecuted for their faith. 200 million. Uh, The International Society for Human Rights, a secular group, estimates that 80% of all religious discrimination in the world today is is against Christians. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, 80%. And we're told that last year about 150,000 Christians were killed for their faith, their identification with Jesus. So if everyone likes you and your faith never offends anyone, Jesus is just saying, you might want to look into that. You might want to think about that because it will cost you some popularity. And here's the third thing to finish this out. It's going to cost you some resources. So again, if you think about the things Jesus did, um, Jesus did things like he fed people who were hungry. He healed people that were sick. He hung out with people that were the social outcasts. He didn't walk in a room and go, where are all the cool people? Because well, I'm going to be with them. He went over to the other group and that, and that cost him. Jesus wouldn't just kind of, he, he, he would go up to people who were sick. Of all the things that Jesus did, this is probably the one that freaks me out the most. He would go up to sick people and touch them, you know? So he would just like walk in a room like, I don't want to touch sick people. If you're sick, I, I, it bothers me if, I, if you say, I know someone who was sick last week, then I don't even want to be around you. I want to get the pure you know, and because and, uh, I don't want to catch anything. But Jesus would walk right up to sick people. In fact, he would walk up to people with leprosy, which back then in that day, that was a slow, agonizing death sentence. And, and, and if you were a person who didn't, if you were a clean person, you wouldn't get anywhere near someone with leprosy because you might catch it and there's no cure for you. But Jesus would just walk right up to lepers and, you know, he'd like pat them on the shoulder and go, hey, how you doing? You know, and then he'd heal them and then it would be okay. Then anyone would touch them. But he would just touch people who were sick. And, and Jesus would minister. He would feed. He would love. This is what he did. And, and if you're a disciple, he expects you to do the same thing. Probably one of the greatest stories he told us from, that's known by people all over the world, Christian or non, is the story of the Good Samaritan. And you might remember in that story, in fact, it starts out this way. Jesus tells the story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, the context of the story is this. Um, Jesus tells people, you need to love your neighbors yourself. And so a guy says, could you please tell me who my neighbor is? Because you know, I wouldn't want to have to love somebody I don't need to. So if you could just tell me who's my neighbor, right? So Jesus says, there's a man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he fell into the hands of robbers, uh, they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away and they left him half dead. So he tells the story, this guy's beat up, he's laying there. And then um, it says this religious leader comes walking by and he sees the guy and he kind of goes to the other side of the road and walks by. And then another religious leader um, comes by and sees the guy who's dying and he gets on the other side of the road and walks by. And then the story takes a bit of a twist because a Samaritan comes by. Samaritans were really looked down on by the Jews. A Samaritan though, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, it says he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he, he poured on oil and wine. That would have, was medicine for them. And, and, they, and then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Now, which of these three, speaking of the religious leaders and then the Samaritan, which of these three do you think, Jesus says, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, I guess the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, and he says to us today, go and do likewise. Now, of course, it cost this good Samaritan in several ways. Uh, When he came upon a need and he saw it, he had to be willing to stop what he was doing. I don't know about you, but that's always the hardest part for me. The stopping is the hardest part. When you're driving down the road and you see someone on the side of the road, the stopping is the hardest part. When you're busy and you're going from one place to the next and, and somebody comes along and needs to talk, stopping is always the hardest part. But this is a man who's willing to stop what he was doing and to, to, to suspend his agenda and the things that he needed to do and to get involved. It, it cost him his agenda. It cost him his time. It put him a day behind as far as I can tell. It cost him some money. He gave that, you know, just gave his visa card and said, you know, whatever it cost, take care of it. This guy saw what other people saw, but he did what other people didn't do. He was willing to stop. He was willing to invest. He was willing to bless this guy. And that's what a disciple does. I was reading a a story this last week about a seminary class, um, a homiletics class. Uh, Homiletics is where you learn how to preach, or at least you try to learn how to preach. And and they teach that often at seminaries. And um, I didn't take it at seminaries, you can probably tell. But anyways, um, they uh, they teach this class if you want to take it. And so they had this, this seminary, uh, which I think is brilliant. So this teacher did this. He told the student, students, when you come to class next week, I want you to be prepared to teach a, uh, a small sermon on uh, the Good Samaritan. So everyone went home and they put their their sermons together and they came back. And when they got to class, the the um, the professor says, okay, now I want you to put your notes away and I want you to get up and we're not going to do the sermons in here. We're going to give them in the lecture hall across campus. It's about five minutes away. Uh, it's a good walk. And um, I want you to leave your notes so you don't get your notes. You're going to have to preach without notes, which you weren't planning on, across campus five minutes away. So I need you all to leave right now and we're going to start in five minutes sharp. Now, they're all, as they're making their way they're, uh, across the campus, what he didn't tell them was that he had hired somebody um, to look like he was a homeless person who was hungry and in pain, and he was laying on the path that they would have to walk by to get to where they were going. And so he said that actually people, some people, and they videotaped it, actually walked over the guy, walked over him to get to where they were going. And in the end, only one out of every 10 students stopped to to talk to this guy and to try to help him. Now, why didn't they stop? Well, we know why. Because they were in a hurry. They needed to get somewhere so they could preach a message on the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That's what they needed to do. But I say that because sometimes we can get a little bit like that, can't we? We can just get like so busy doing what we're doing, so busy taking notes on the Good Samaritan, so busy taking notes on discipleship that we actually don't do it. We're just so busy thinking about it. And what Jesus says is a disciple is one who does this stuff. Jesus says, when you see someone in need, a disciple does whatever they can. Whatever they can. They may not be able to solve the whole problem. But if they see someone who's hungry, they'll feed them if they're able to do that. If they see someone who just needs someone to talk to, they'll slow down and they'll talk with them. If they see someone broken down on the side of the road, they'll stop and they'll help them. If they walk into church and they see someone who's lonely and just needs a friend, they'll hang out with them. You know, if they see a pastor who looks tired, they'll take him to Starbucks and get him something to drink, you know. That's what they'll do. Uh, they'll open up their, fri- their, their fridge and they'll just let people walk right into their house 
and eat right out of the refrigerator. That's what they do. So if being a disciple is going to cost us, and I, so I'll just tell you, it's gonna, if you're going to be a disciple, it's going to cost you. If you're a Christian, I don't know that it's going to cost you anything. I guess you can decide that. But if you want to be a disciple, it's going to cost you. So the question is, what do I get in return, right? Because we all want something in return. We're not going to do all this for nothing, right? We want something for this. So what is it? What do you get? Now, here's the thing that I've learned again and again and again. And that is, whenever God tells us to do something, you can always bet that it's in your best interest to do that thing. Even if it seems hard. Even if we may not be able to see it at the time. So last week, we finished a series. We talked for four weeks about relationships. And we talked about the whole refrigerator relationship idea, right? That you just let people just like walk in your front door. So we said, for some of us, we have relationships that are kind of like our living room, right? We all sit and we watch something and we look forward and we watch it. We don't, we interact a little bit, but mostly we're watching something else. And then some of us have relationships like around a dining room table. We face each other and we talk and do life. And then for some of us, we have relationships that are kind of like refrigerator relationships. We have people in our life, they're so close to us, we, we can walk in their house or they can walk in our house and just walk right past the living room and right past the dining room and without an invitation, just go right to the refrigerator and see what's in there. Is there anything good in there? And just help yourself to it. So we talked about that. But you may have been wondering, like, so what's the payoff? What do I get if I have refrigerator relationships? And so I, I found a, uh, some research this week and I, at first I thought, oh, it's a whole week late. I should have found it earlier. But uh, I'm going to tell it to you anyways, even though it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Um, it's an article. It's called Having Friends Could Save Your Life. And uh, this research was done based on um, a meta-analysis of 148 previously published studies. So they took 148 studies and put them all together. And here is what they discovered. This is, this is rocket science here, kids. Listen to this. Here's a new health risk that you need to worry about as you get older. According to researchers, low social interaction has the equivalent lifespan impact. So if you don't have many friends, all right, it has the same impact on your life, get this, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day every day of your life or being a raging alcoholic. Cutting yourself off from other people is worse even than not getting exercise and it's twice as bad as obesity. So you better get out there and make some friends. So again, you know, as we talked about last week, like you may be like, I don't want people coming in my house. And I don't want people getting in my refrigerator. They're going to eat all my yogurt. You know, what's, what's up with that? But again, what we find is, but it's good for you. It's good for you and it's good for them. But anyways, just to finish off this sermon. So what do I get out of discipleship? Well, here's what you get. You get Jesus. Now, I hope this is not a letdown for you. Um, you might have been hoping for money or um, your hair would grow back or something like that. And I, I tell you, you can go to a lot of churches today and that's what you hear. Oh yeah, if you love Jesus, he'll make you rich. If you love Jesus, you know, everything will go right. Everybody will love you and nobody will hate you. And, but there's a guy named Paul and I'm gonna close with this passage. Paul, Paul says this. He's writing about his life and he wraps it all up this way. He says, now what is more? It's kind of summing up his life. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness. Now, when Paul says a loss, he's a man who was rich and he lost that. He's a man who was famous and he lost that. He's a man who was respected and he lost that. He's a man who has a freedom and he lost that. He's a man, he had his health at one time, he lost that. Paul lost everything, so he knows what he's talking about. I consider everything, everything that I had a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake, by the way, I've lost everything. But I consider all that rubbish, everything I lost, that I may gain Christ and be, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith 
in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is, and is by faith in him. So what he's saying is this. I, I once was lost, but now I'm fast. I, I once was in sin, but because of what Jesus did for me. Now I, I have righteousness. I'm right with God. And that's what I get from following Christ. So he says this. He goes on and he says, he says, um, he says I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So just really quick. I don't know if I'm the only shallow person in this room, but I'm willing to admit that the reason I love Jesus and want to follow him is because I want to live forever. Anyone else want to live forever? Anyone? All right. Some of you don't? Okay, that's, that's okay. You might need to go work that out. Uh, but here's the thing. I'm going to admit to you, all right? The reason I became a Christian, quite frankly, was, and I, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I became a Christian. I had never been to church. I had never heard the gospel. I'd, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff, but I read this book, and it told me I was a sinner, and I believed that, and it told me I was going to hell, and that wasn't too far-fetched, and it told me that Jesus could save me, and I could go to heaven, and I was like, sign me up for that, all right, because that's what I want. When I, I didn't become a Christian because I loved Jesus, or I understood the gospel, or I understood that, you know, I, it was none of that. I didn't want to go to hell. That's all there is to it. I'm a very simple person. I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven, so he says, I want to know Christ and the power. I want to know the power, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death so that somehow, in some way, I could attain, here we go, here's where it is. I could attain to the what? I could attain to the resurrection. So one day, even though I'm, you know, in great health and super good looking and all that stuff right now and really intelligent, I know one day all that's going to crash and burn. And one day when that's gone and I breathe my last breath and I close my eyes, I'm hoping somehow, some way that right after that, my eyes open up and I'm standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. And if I am, I'll just be like, yes, right? Because if you get Jesus, guess what you get? You get everything that matters. You get everything. You get right with God. You get purpose in life. You get the power for living. You get the love of God. You get a purpose in everything that you do and God leading you. You get Jesus. When you get him, you get the way, the truth, the life. You get it all. So what he's saying is this. Life's too short to play games, to be a designer Christian, where you pick and choose what parts of Jesus you're going to accept and what parts you're going to reject. So let's be disciples. Let's be people who are completely surrendered, every part of our heart, body, mind, and soul, and strength. Because if you get Jesus, you know what? You get everything that matters. Let's pray.